What rich truth anchors our hearts. When the disciple Peter sent his letter to a group of believers in central Turkey who maybe around 61, 62 AD, who were suffering under great pressure and stress and distress. They were a minority group under pressure from government agencies and false teaching outside and false teaching inside. He anchored their hearts with rich truth that we're gonna look at today again. By the way, we need to be in prayer for our brothers and sisters in Turkey. The situation there is becoming more, more radicalized in opposition to Christianity. And we have a lot of precious brothers and sisters there who are near and dear to our hearts. So please be in prayer for that country and that situation as you think about it. We want to look today at 2 Peter again, chapter 1. And Peter assures the people there that if they know Jesus as their Savior, as their Lord, then they now have everything they need for life abundantly and eternal. And they have everything they need for religious reality. We're going to flesh that out a little bit this morning. You see, around them, of course, were lots of false religions, lots of man-made religions. We live in days ourselves like that. There's lots of man-made religions. But there's a specific reality to the religion of Jesus Christ that Peter addresses for us. And it's interesting because it's unique in the, in the reality that if you, uh, in fact, are not experiencing what we're going to talk about today, it's entirely because you don't want to. Because the, the quality that we're going to talk about today, which is godliness, comes with the package deal of salvation. It comes with our salvation. Let's look at the text this morning. In 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read a fair bit of it again. We... We, we're getting pretty used to this text, I hope, and it's so rich. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Savior. Now listen to this. This sets us up for our quality for today. His divine power has given us everything we need for life, and the reference there is, is life eternal, and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, 
Make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, these qualities, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a big reward promised to us. A big reason, I mean, if we need to understand a reason, why would we be interested in making every effort to add these qualities to our faith? I think being welcomed into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is as good a reason as any. What do you think? We've been singing about that this morning. We've just, our hearts have just been prepared for what God has for us from his word in focusing on our amazing and wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so it is to that that <clears throat> Peter gives his attention and turns his attention. <clears throat> Excuse me. There's a unique thing about godliness, which is the quality we're looking at today, the fifth quality. Unbelievers in the flesh can practice forms of goodness. Unbelievers in the flesh can gain knowledge of the scriptures. An unbeliever can read the Bible, gain some knowledge. An unbeliever can exercise a certain amount of sensual control. They do it all the time. An unbeliever can stay under hard times with patience. But there is a quality that an unbeliever cannot manifest, and that is godliness. This is a very unique, so today we're, we're, we're having a fascinating moment together in, Peter, in Peter's text here with these quality word lists because godliness is something ex- incredibly different from the, the others in terms of its source and reality and who can and who can't have it. But I think it's important for us to do a quick review this morning before we uh, go too far just because the Bible says we ought to review. Look at what Peter says to his people in verse 13 of this first chapter of 2 Peter. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon be, I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me and I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things. So what are these things that he's been talking about? What have we been talking about? Just a quick review The first we looked at was goodness, remember? Goodness is that essential quality of God upon which the universe itself was created. If you could take all this material world that you see and you could understand its its source and its, its beginning, it is based upon the essential quality of God. The essential goodness of God made material is creation. And so the question is, are you 
full of goodness, because that's what you've been called to do. Make every effort to be full of goodness, be full of this essential quality of God. We looked at knowledge. Knowledge, of course, is not some sort of secret, mysterious thing that only some people can find as they dig deeply inside of themselves. That's absolutely the opposite of what this was referring to. This is the revealed word of God, the knowledge of Jesus Christ that has been revealed to us. Are you taking advantage of what you have? What a gracious thing it is for God to have given us a revelation of himself, our Bibles that we have and we freely have to read about him, to know about him. And so are you working on upgrading your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Make every effort to know more about Christ through his word. We looked at the word self-control. There's no, really, there's no, um, it, it really doesn't mean self-control in the sense that you can do this on your own. It means controlled from within by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit working on your lives, enabling you to say no, particularly to, uh, to sensual temptation. That's the particular uh, stress on this through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Are you learning how to say no through the presence and power of God's Spirit? We talked about the discipline of fasting as one way of teaching us how to learn how to say no. And then last week, Pastor Nick took us through this word perseverance in some texts. Some texts uh, translate it patience. There's really no good English word to translate the original language, it, but it was nicely described by Pastor Nick as to stay under. It means to stay under the circumstance and situation that God has placed you in, demonstrating your trust in the living God. Not hiding, not running, not fighting, not doubting, but trusting in the Lord God and remaining steadfast in your convictions that Christ will deliver you and will help you. And that's what patience means, staying under, to trust in God. He talked about putting up barriers to keep faith in and fear out, remember? Tying into Christ and untying things that are not taking us to Christ. He talked about be, being still. So that kind of catches you up. Are you, are you there with me? That's kind of the quick review. Now today, you'll see in the text that we have this word godliness, it's a fascinating word. It hardly appears in the Bible at all. It appears one time in Acts. Uh, Peter refers to himself and describes himself uh, as godly, in godliness. And, and then, of course, he writes in his letters about this term. Paul uses it, but in particular, uh, only to Timothy and, the, and Titus in the pastorals. It's kind of the characteristic of the pastorals, but it's not used a lot. And there's a reason for that, because godliness is, is uh, our English translation of the word Eusebia. Now, when the Greeks saw this word, when these people saw this word in that first century, they saw what you're going to see right now, the goddess Eusebius, Eusebia. That's what they saw. When, when they were reading this letter, okay, can you get a picture of this? They saw in their minds, Peter's saying to them, and you need to make every effort to add to your life Eusebia, <laughs> Eusebia, that's a Greek goddess. Now, um, Eusebia was one of the good Greek mythological goddesses. She was married to Namos, who was the law, 
Her Roman name was Pietus. So that gives you a little bit of help as to what it might have meant. It meant piety, duty, um, uh, loyalty, filial uh, respect. In other words, the respect that a son or a daughter would give to their parent. And so the goddess Eusebia represented that quality of, uh, of, uh, of character. Now, you're saying, why, Rick, this is a Bible class, not a Greek mythological class. I understand, but I need to, I need to set the, the, the pattern here for you. This, the simple truth is the Greeks did not really have a word for being religiously excellent. Okay? So... Peter's and Paul are using the language, they, the only language they have. They had the language of Greek. And so they're using this word to demonstrate a character trait. The role of, you see, the role of Eusebia, the goddess, was to be a representation of showing proper devotion to the gods of the region. So... This word was the closest word the Greeks had to being religiously excellent. So context has to help us with what this really means. And quite frankly, this is one of the rare moments when English is better than Greek. All right? Hooray! Finally, we come to the, the fact that in translating this into English, it's definitely translated well and right. Godliness is exactly what it means. And so when you break apart the word, sabia means a kind of religion or a kind of living, and the prefix, E-U, you, means right. So it's, right, it's a right religious kind of living. And so if you can get this in your mind, it helps us to understand that, that for Peter, what he's certainly doing, it may be hard to imagine that Peter isn't debunking the value of a mythological goddess in favor of saying, guess what? The glory of your salvation and the power of God that has moved into your life enables you to demonstrate this quality in an ever-increasing measure. And so I want to change our, 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 word, our uh, question order a little bit uh, this week. You know, we, we always do what, why, and how. This week we're going to do why first, okay? And then what and then how, okay? You're not going to walk out on me, are you, if you change this around a little bit? I just think you need to know why before you know what. So we're going to look at the why of godliness. Why is this so important? Well, I'm pretty convinced that Peter here is taking a shot at Greek mythology at the same time as he is borrowing a word from the original language and now repurposing it to lead us to a tremendous theological reality. And it is this, that you cannot acquire godliness by fate or by flesh. Okay? You cannot. Uh, look at your verse 3 in your text. His divine power. Jesus, which is the nearest uh, reference to verse 3, Jesus our Lord, Jesus' divine power has given us everything we need for godliness. You can't get this from Eusebia, the goddess. You can't get this by flesh. People outside of Jesus can't have this. This is only available to those who have the divine power of Jesus at work within them. 
This is how he established. So why this quality? It's not something you can get except by Christ. This, it enables us to escape. And why this is important? Because having this quality, look at the end of verse 4, enables you and I to escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. If godliness takes over our lives, we no longer have evil desires that will bring corruption to our lives, you see? So this is why this is so important. Secondly, it's important because the image of God in mankind has become almost unrecognizable. One commentator on this text uh, drew a tremendous illustration that I think might help you to understand just how bad things are in terms of the image of God in people. And, you know, I'm assuming that you know that humans were made, every human is made in the image of God. I, I'm assuming you know that. The question is, how well are we modeling the image of God? And, and the illustration is given that um, humanity presently is like an, an airplane accident whereby an individual has come upon this airplane accident and the carnage is strewn all over the place. And this individual, if you can imagine, has never heard of an airplane and never actually has ever heard that there's an, a, a vehicle that can actually fly in the air. And it's like asking this individual who's never heard of an airplane, has never seen one fly, doesn't know anything about flying, and asking them to reconstruct the airplane in its state of carnage to its original position. This author has painted the picture that humanity, in terms of the image of God, is just as bad as that. When people look at people, they see very little, if anything, that reflects back the image of God. This is why this has become so important. Godliness is God's reconstruction program of the image of God in the people he calls into his kingdom. Thirdly, we must not become, why is this an important quality? Because we must not become satisfied with simply being saved. Or we may, in fact, not be saved. Now, there's people, you know, they, they ask the question, listen, I believe the gospel or I, un I understand the gospel and, and, and I, I think I understand about salvation. Isn't that enough? Well, yes and no. Yes in the fact that trust in Jesus Christ and his saving work is absolutely enough for eternal salvation. But there's nowhere in the scriptures where it gives us any indication that anybody who truly believed in Jesus Christ would absolutely rest there and think there and stay there. The, the problem with taking a position where, well, I don't really need to make every effort to add these things to my life. Why should I be doing all of that? It, it's actually a, a signal, a very dangerous signal in your life that you may be re resting in false a false sense of security, that you don't actually, in fact, know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, that you don't actually have his divine power resident in you, because our Lord is committed in our salvation to grow us, to transform us, to radically change us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's 
the preparation work that he is doing in our lives, preparing us for glory. And so it's, it's abnormal. It's, it's no, it would be no more natural for a Christian to be satisfied not to grow than for a baby to not grow into an adult. It would be unnatural. And so we embrace this because there's always a danger in a religious setting like ours of gathering people who are moral but not necessarily spiritual, not necessarily have embraced Jesus Christ and his transforming work in their lives. Trying to be good, trying to be knowledgeable, trying to be self-controlled, trying to be patient, trying to be godly doesn't work unless you have Jesus in your life. So let's dig into it then. What is godliness? And how does it differ from goodness, which we've just, was our first quality after faith? I think goodness is the fruit of godliness. Goodness is the fruit of godliness because godliness is a complete transformation of your character into the likeness of Christ in every aspect of your being. Godliness is the complete transformation of your character into the likeness of Christ in every aspect of your being. One writer says, Good godliness is a call to be like God. And I, I think that's probably the very best description you could ever have. Because God-likeness. It is a call to be like God. We're to be like the image of God. He's created us to be. It's a very practical awareness of God in every aspect of life, another put. But taking it from verse 3 of the, te- of the letter that Peter writes, godliness is the goal of your knowledge of the scriptures. And it is the fruit or the gift of his power. As we consume the word of God, the goal is not to become big-headed and proud. The goal is to become like Jesus. That's the goal of our knowledge, to be more godly, to be like him. And it is the gift of his power in our lives to enable it to happen in us. So, enablement comes from God, but the effort must come from us. This is not a sit down and hope it happens osmotically because we sit in a chair in a church. This requires our effort. The power is there if you know Jesus, but you won't become more godly if you do nothing about it. There is effort that's required in this. So, Let's look at a couple of practical examples. Let's look at some examples from the scriptures. Um, Interestingly, there is no Hebrew equivalent to godliness. There's no Hebrew word equivalent. So in the Old Testament, there's no, you won't find the word godliness because there is no Hebrew equivalent, but there is the concept everywhere. And there may be no better place than to look at Psalm chapter 1 for us to get a grasp from the scriptures of what the godly life is all about and to help us understand it. Um, It'll help us form a picture. The, The first psalm, Psalm 1, is a tremendous psalm. It sets up the whole of the rest of the Psalter by establishing the basic outlook of humanity and our relationship or lack thereof with God. It it is, in fact, the Old Testament equivalent to the Sermon on the Mount. And in this psalm, which we will look at, 
you're going to read here, we're going to read here that there are two kinds of people in the world. And quite honestly, there are only two kinds of people in this world. There's not a third kind. There's not a fourth kind. There's not an in-between kind. There's only two kinds of people in this world. We, all, we look different. We have different colors. We have different eye shapes. We've got all kinds of different things going on. But there's only two kinds of people in the world. There's godly people and there's ungodly people. That's how the world breaks down. That's all there is. And that's what this psalm sets us up to understand. That's how the world plays out. Now, watch with me as we... Blessed is the man, verse 1 of Psalm 1, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose life does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. So there's the blessed, the righteous, the godly. There's the wicked, the unrighteous, the ungodly. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is how all of life breaks down. And there's some important clues here if we want to understand the nature of godliness. The blessed man or the blessed woman is the godly woman or the godly man, the righteous man, the righteous woman, the one who's turned their lives over to Jesus Christ. The ungodly have not. And there are some characteristics and nature of those who are godly that are specific. The first is this, they, don't, they minimize ungodly influence in their lives. Do you see that? A godly person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. A godly person does not stand in the way of sinners. A godly person does not sit in the seat of mockers, meaning mockers of God. Now that makes, that's a very that makes our lives very complicated because... We live in a fallen world. We live among ungodly people. We go to school and learn from ungodly people. We work with ungodly people. It's very difficult to extricate ourselves from the ungodly. But the key reality here is influence. Influence. We are called to stay in this world we are in this world, but we are not of this world. God has chosen not to remove us from this world, but he certainly is calling us not to be influenced by this world. And that takes every effort. When, when Peter writes here, make every effort to be godly, this is strenuous work. Moms and dads, you're sending your kids out to public school. If they don't have a Christian teacher, and it's likely that they don't, they're being influenced every day by ungodly curriculum. That means you've got to do extra work to show them the truth, to help them to unlearn what they've learned that's been wrong. You know, entertainment or we can go on, media, all kinds of things for adults or whatever. Folks, godliness requires us being very specific about influence. Uh, as I mentioned to the first uh, group this morning, um, 
I don't usually recommend stuff to watch on Netflix, but I'm going to recommend something. How many people have Netflix here? How many people are willing to? Yeah, there's lots of Netflix. There's a reason for me asking this. Because if you don't have Netflix, I want you to look around. If you find a friend that has Netflix, I want you to ask them if I can come over to your house and watch something. Socially distanced, of course. Um, there's a, there's a, pro, a program I watched about two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago, I forget which, called The Social Dilemma. I want you to all write this down. The Social Dilemma. This is required viewing. Pastor Kay, you don't have Netflix, do you? No, but I got lots of friends. All right. This is required watching, all right? The Social Dilemma. You must watch this, and you must watch this with your kids, your teenagers, your college kids, your junior high kids. I'm not sure how young, maybe younger than that. I'm so out of touch. Maybe your grade sixes and grade fives. But it, it, it is critical for you to watch this in terms of influence through social platforms. Not by Christians, by the way. This is presented by the ungodly, talking about an ungodly medium and its impact on people's lives. Please, please watch. There's going to be a test on it. So you've got to watch The Social Dilemma. You must watch it because our thinking, our, our behaving, our believing is how our allegiance is formed. And so the, 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 um, the godly are formed, first of all, by being careful to minimize ungodly influence, but secondly, to maximize the influence of God. Do you see what it says here? But his delight or her delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And in so doing, he or she becomes like a tree that's planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in season, and, and the leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. The, the psalmist is saying, start here in the word of God. Set out from here the word of God. Settle here the word of God. It, what shapes your thinking shapes your life. Absorb God. It makes you productive and effective. And when you go through a dry spell in your life spiritually, and you will, you will still, your, your leaves will still not wither. You will still stand. You will still Still, you will stand through the drought of, of, of apparently God's silence in your life. God, where are you? Why are you not speaking to me? Why have you grown silent? Why are my prayers bouncing off the roof? You will remain fruitful in those moments. If you are absorbing God in your life, you will keep prospering. Whereas the others are rootless and weightless and worthless and unproductive and ineffective and total eternal bust. I must hasten along here, but, but Paul writes to Timothy about godliness, and you, you ought to look at it with me. In 1 Timothy, um, Timothy chapter 3, please look there. It's just so fabulous. He talks about the mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness versus a form of godliness? In, in 1 Timothy 3, um, Paul, writing to a young pastor, talks to him about the, the greatness of God's household, the church of Jesus, and, and how it's the pillar and the foundation of the truth, and how essential it is to the world. And then he says, and beyond all question, or 
without doubt, the mystery of godliness is great. Look at what he says here in the text. And what is this mystery of godliness? It's Jesus. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, we believed on, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. He just gets caught up in this, this greatness of Jesus Christ. And, and a mystery, of course, whenever you read about a mystery in the New Testament, it means that something that before was not known but is now revealed. And, and so how does one become godly? How does godliness happen? Paul said it was formerly a mystery, but the mystery of godliness is Jesus. Jesus is the one who moves into our lives and enables us. The person of Christ is this great act of godliness in our lives. So it's a life centered on Christ and power derived from him. He, he, he writes to Timothy and says that, but there's a form of godliness as well in 2 Timothy 3. And a form of godliness, sadly, are people who are connected to religion, but not connected to the power of God. And, and they go through the motions and why I think it's important to bring this up is because this, this quest for godliness is so critical. If, you, if this isn't a burning desire in your heart, then pray that God will cause it to be so. Because you might be just practicing a form of godliness, connected to religion, connected to Calvary, but not connected to the power of Jesus Christ. If godliness isn't moving in your life, you might not be connected to the power of Jesus Christ through salvation. You see, a form of godliness, if you read on further in that particular, uh, it has characteristics. People who are just have a form of godliness, they mess up weak people. They oppose leadership in church and they oppose the truth. They also are messed up in their own thinking. You can read this in verses six and on. And in 1 Timothy 4, 7, they lead an undisciplined life. So there are evidences of one being in a form of godliness but lacking the power of godliness. It's becoming, uh, godliness, thirdly, is becoming holy like God is holy and no longer conform to evil. If you zip back to to your, our text in 1 Peter, and, or 2 Peter, and you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, he, he writes here, um, as obedient children, verse 14, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Godliness can be described as being a being holy, living a holy life. You were, I was, before we came to know Christ, children of disobedience. And we were, by nature, children of the wrath of God. But when we came to know Christ, we became children of obedience to Christ. And we no longer were under his wrath. We set our affections on him and on his word and living it out. God has become our new standard. That's why Peter says, be holy because God is holy. We're going to look a little bit more at that in a few moments. So how then, finally, do we make every effort 
to add to our faith godliness. How do we do this? You have everything you need. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Yes, yes. Then you have everything you need. There's nothing more that I need to give you or anybody else needs to give you. You have everything you need to be godly. That's good news. Isn't that great news? That's fabulous. So how then? Well, first of all, live for God. Live for God in everything that you do. God, you see, God, when he brought you into his family, he makes you holy. There's nobody in God's family, by the way, that isn't holy. You know that? That's why we're called saints. When God brings something into his possession because he's a holy God, the things that belong to God are also holy just because they belong to him. You have been made holy, but you are to be holy. You are to make every effort. His holy things behave in a holy way. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live according to Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what we learn in the scriptures. In 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. We live for God. We are no longer common or profane, but we live for him. In Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's the message of, our, of living for God. We are now living in obedience. We live for justice. We live for mercy. We live for compassion. We live for morality. We, li we live for purity. We live for unity with one another. That's what living for God is, and you will be rewarded with godliness. You become like the object of your affection. Husbands and wives start to, start to look like each other over the years. You start to become like each other. Okay, Tamara, maybe not you. But you know what? Most, most of us do. We just start to take on the nature of the people we love, the people who are, are, are affection, we have great affection for. We think like them. We, we, we respond like them. We finish each other's sentences, right? That's, that's what happens. You start to become like the object of your affection. So live for God. He is the object of our affection. Secondly, we think like Jesus. How, how do I become godly? I need to think like Jesus. Well, how do I do that? Can I do that? In Philippians 2.5 Something else, some other benefit and blessing that came along with salvation is that we have the mind of Christ. When the Holy Spirit of God moved into your life, you also, you have the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, Paul writes to the Philippians. Let this attitude be in you. Let this mind of Christ be in you. So here's how it works. If you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29, look what it says here. And we know... That in all things, I mean, most of you, this is one of your favorite verses, right? You use this a lot. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Our problem is we don't define the word good properly. Because you're going to see at the end of this what this good actually is. We want something resolved in our life the way we want it resolved. But that's not the promise that's being made here. Let's finish it out. 
for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. That's the good. That's what all things in the Christian life are working toward. Not necessarily what you want it to be or what you hoped it would be. Everything that's happening in your life is to make you more like Jesus. This is a work of godliness in our lives. This is powerful stuff. So every situation, every event, every circumstance is a godliness-shaping exercise, which requires of us, with God, asking certain questions of every situation that comes up in our lives. Questions like, what and why? From our settled position of we understand God is, is shaping my life, we need to ask questions like, what is God's plan in this to make me more like himself? What, what spiritual principle is at play here in this situation that I find myself in? What new godly quality is God intending to develop because of this event that has happened in my life? What would God have me to do under these circumstances that I might become more like Jesus? What, or how can I follow in the steps of Jesus in this particular scenario? And on and on we can go with questions. But this requires us gathering ourselves with Christ and allowing his mind to flow through our thinking and shape us and change us in how we think about every situation. And then finally, and by the way, those two things, living for God and thinking like Jesus, are about influence. God influencing us. The mind of Christ influencing us. In a world that is seeking to influence us away from Christ. And then finally, claim the promises of God. How can I become more godly? Brothers and sisters, this is your work. This is the effort you must put into it. Claim the promises of God in your life. Because God means what he has promised. Do you agree with that? Do you, do you believe that God means what he promises? So here's the, here's the text on that. In Second in Peter, you need to notice that Peter has tied godliness to promises. Notice in verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for godliness. Verse 4. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, through trusting the promises of God, through acting on the promises of God, you are being changed into be more godly. You may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desire. Do you see the connection here? You have been granted the power to change. And now you have been granted the mechanism of change. The promises of God, trusting, believing in the promises of God and acting on the promises of God is how God changes our lives. It's how God shapes us to be more and more like Christ. 
So you need to know the promises of God. That's why knowledge is all tied in here. You need to know through our knowledge of him. You need to know the promises of God, what he has promised to you. Because when you're in a tough situation and you wonder, where is God? Why did God disappear? Why is he not answering my prayer? You know what needs to come to your mind? Jesus has promised you something. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And he means what he has promised. And that changes everything in a situation where you think, I'm all alone, I'm by myself, God has abandoned me, God has left me. No, he has not. He never will. You need to know that through the promises of God, you can learn to say no to those things that take you away from God and sin. For instance, Titus 2, 11, 12. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation. What's the appearing, the appearing grace of God? Jesus Christ, of course. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. The grace of God manifests through the appearing of Jesus Christ and salvation that has been granted to our hearts teaches us from inside to say no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. That's making every effort. So that's how you stand firm. That's how you stay under. That's how you remain unmovable. That's how you remain steadfast and abounding in the Lord. That's how you get to be like Jesus. When you are tempted, when Jesus was tempted in the desert, in the wilderness, what did he do? He claimed the promises of his father. So, beloved, as we wrap this up, so that's, that's the octane, okay? That's the octane. The influence is living for God, the mind of Christ, the octane, the power, is by trusting in the promises of God and acting on them. So listen to me as we close this. Our godliness is the living breathing testimony witness of a world, uh, 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 to the world of a saving, life-changing God. You remember our illustration about the plane crash and the carnage and all of that and rebuilding it all? When the world looks at us, we are to be the prototype of the image of Jesus Christ we are a powerful witness and testimony to the saving, life-changing work of a true and mighty God. When people see a godly life, we are demonstrating to them that there is a God and he does change people's lives. God is remaking a godly people into his image through fire and pain and trouble and frustrations. It's a different kingdom of people. Not a kingdom made up of flaky fans and, and, and contractors and consumers who are just along for their own selfish ride, but rather people who truly love God, a new human, humanity, a new creation, created in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. That's what godliness is. So let me ask you, who do you most resemble? A man of the world or a woman of the flesh, or, or a man of God, or a, and a woman of the Holy Spirit? Who do you resemble? 
Everybody out there is trying to change their lives in some way. Whether they're doing it with self-help or health care or physical training or yoga or gender shifting or whatever. But only God can actually change a life into the image and likeness of himself. And that's who we were made to be like. So when you embrace with full effort this quality called godliness, which only believers can do, when you embrace this, you are actually being changed into the actual human being that God always planned and created you to be. We are to be the example on earth of what the true human being is to be like and act like and believe like and live like and love like. That's what godliness... So how important is godliness? <laughs> how can you put a measure on that? It is the testimony to Jesus Christ. It is the way people were meant to be. So I invite you here this morning and I invite people online. First of all, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's not possible for you to have the image of God remade in your life. It is not possible for you to be the human being that God actually created you to be. Without Jesus, you can't do that. So today is a day of salvation. Today is a day that you can reach out to Christ and believe that Jesus Christ died on a cross for you to, to die for your sins and that by repenting of your sins and believing in him, you can have Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And the power of Christ moves into your life and enables you to change, be transformed. That offer is open to you. But once you've come to know Christ, and I'm talking to believers now out there, it's about influence and octane. If you want to grow, if you really want to see your life transformed, then make sure you are, being abs you are absorbing God, influence, the influence of God in your life, the mind of Christ. And you must, you must, you must cling to and hold on to the promises of God. That's the octane. That's the energy with which God uses to change your life. As you act on his word, he changes you into the likeness of Jesus. Our Father, we thank you so much for your truth. It is rich to us. It is gold to us, Lord. It is precious, precious to us. It is the way our lives are changed. It means the world to us, Lord, to have you transform our lives, to enable us to, to live out our life the way you always purposed us to, the way you created us to be. I pray, Father, that there might, if there's some out there who don't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Would you rescue them? Would you call them into your holy presence? And then, Lord, make us holy. You make things holy. We ask that you would Create in our lives a desire, a burning desire to be more and more like Christ. To live for God. To, to have the mind of Christ. To, to, to stand on the promises of Jesus. Oh Lord, I pray. And I thank you because you've promised this to us. You've given us everything we need. And you, by your promises, will change us. This is a promise to us. So I pray that we'll embrace it with great vigor. This week and ongoing, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.